Welcome to Life on Life, Lesson 14, Drawing the Sail on the Wind of Change. Several years ago, our family took a vacation near Lake Michigan, and there were these sailboats you could rent. I talked my cousin Sarah into joining me, assuring her I knew how to sail, but 30 minutes later, our sailboat was upside down in the middle of the lake. It did get me thinking, however, what makes a sailboat move? Is it the skill of the sailor? Certainly skill makes a difference, as I learned that day. But no matter how knowledgeable or determined the sailor might be, he needs something else over which he has no control. The wind. If there's no wind, his boat will not move. At the same time, the wind can be blowing fiercely without your boat moving at all, or at least not in the direction you intend. You can be stuck, your sail haplessly flapping, or you can be tossed to and fro by the waves. You can even capsize like I did. For you to move and move in the right direction, certain skills need to be learned and put into practice. Moreover, you won't be able to enjoy sailing until those skills have become so internalized you're not even thinking about them. You've practiced them so much through training, they've become second nature. You're not thinking about sailing, you're just sailing. And though sailing might be unfamiliar to many of us, it's a good metaphor for our life with God. No matter how determined we might be, we can't change our hearts. No amount of knowledge or grit will avail. We're always dependent on a power outside of ourselves. We need the wind. As Jesus reminds us, the wind blows where it will. Yet at the same time, we're not passive. We can't control the wind, but we can catch it. And in order to catch the wind, we have to draw the sail. And in order to draw the sail, certain God-given, time-honored skills need to be learned and put into practice. Otherwise, even if the wind is blowing fiercely, you can be stuck. I need to take up a possible objection that might be troubling you. I thought our salvation is all of grace, but you're making it sound like I have to do something. Well, sometimes a desire to express what is true about the grace of God, that there's nothing we need to do to make God love us more, leads to an assumption that's false, that there is nothing left for us to do. Life with God is all of grace. At the same time, God's grace invites our participation. Grace is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. The Bible calls us to rest in Christ and at the same time calls us to strive to enter that rest. One old preacher put it, we must labor to be brought near. And you can hear both sides. It's an active command, labor, something to do, but to be brought near is a passive stance, which sounds like it's God's responsibility. Yes. We don't often hear the complexity today of labor to be brought near, but you'll find it assumed by the most stalwart defenders of grace. John Calvin said, Let us labor to feel Christ living in us. And Jonathan Edwards exhorted, We should labor to be growing in divine love. For some, this call to labor may sound suspicious, but our suspicion might reveal something more about us. Perhaps we're expecting the presence of Christ just to be with us each morning like dew on the morning grass. 
If you're anything like me, no one ever told you that spiritual health, like physical health, requires training. Training, we must labor to become the men and women God created us to be. There's a wonderful phrase for this, and now with the Lord's help, I shall become myself. But this becoming calls for training, and I can't say often enough that we're not training to be loved or to get into shape so that God will be pleased with us. That's not the gospel. That's why uh, lessons 12 and 13 stress that the soil of change is being rooted and grounded in God's love. We always go back to His undeserved embrace. And there is such a thing as spiritual experience, a, a mountaintop. Um, spiritual experience can be beautiful, but by definition, these experiences are rare and unrepeatable. If we just wait for an experience of Christ's love to fall on us, or we don't feel His presence, we may complain of periods of being dry or stuck. We might even be tempted to blame this on someone else, our church, our friends, our parents, or even God Himself. It's easy to grow cynical. But perhaps the reason that some of us are feeling stuck is because we're not laboring to be brought near. No one really ever showed us how. We were told to read our Bibles or pray. Maybe initially this was rewarding, but over time, for more than a few of us, it began to feel more like a duty. Not to mention there might be other reasons why you feel dry, which are completely out of your control. There are always and will always be seasons of burnout and exhaustion. Nevertheless, God calls us to keep pressing on to know Him. What might that look like to rest in Christ while at the same time to strive to enter that rest? The Bible captures this dynamic in one remarkable sentence. The sentence begins, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling which sounds like we're responsible, but the verse continues, for it is God who works in you, which sounds like God is responsible. Exactly. Jesus captures this dynamic with his word abide, which even in English captures the sense. On the one hand, the word suggests resting, like a child leaning, abiding in his mother's arms. It's a posture of reliance like branches depend on a vine, which is exactly the context in which Jesus uses the word, abide in me. This is a relationship of dependency. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. On the other hand, abide is an action, for here is something you must choose to do. Jesus commands us, abide in me. Like a dog commanded to stay, we must exert ourselves not to become distracted or move away from our master. My friend likes to paraphrase this, don't just do something, stand there. And learning to stand there turns out to be harder for many of us than our tendency to want to do something. Abiding in Jesus doesn't come naturally, and yet Jesus makes it clear that the amount of fruit that comes out of our lives will be a direct result of how much or how little we abide in Him. So how can we learn to abide in Jesus? Well, that's where this sailing metaphor is helpful. Life with God is not like a motorboat where we're in control of the power and direction, but neither is it like a raft where we just sit back and are carried along. It's like sailing. We can't control the most important thing, the wind, 
but that doesn't mean there's nothing left for us to do. What can we do? We can draw the sail to catch the wind. To switch metaphors, we have to train. For any of us who've ever run a marathon, this makes sense. What if you made up your mind one day, I'd like to run a marathon, but you never made any lifestyle changes? You didn't adjust your diet. You never trained. You'd most likely never be able to finish the race, even if you tried really, really hard. If you want to run the race, which is actually a metaphor the Apostle Paul uses, you need to undertake a new lifestyle, a new life of training. You'd need to arrange your life around certain practices that would enable you to do what you couldn't do by willpower alone. When it comes to running a marathon, you must train, not merely try. This may not sound like much of a difference, but John Ortberg says this is the single most helpful principle I know regarding spiritual transformation. This immense difference between training to do something and trying to do something. Because many of us fall into the trap of trying to be like Jesus and we get frustrated. To go back to our sailing metaphor, imagine you saw someone standing in the middle of her sailboat blowing as hard as she could on a limp sail. Blowing and blowing like a frustrated child on those birthday candles that keep relighting. Then she turns and says, why won't my sailboat move? I'm blowing as hard as I can. I'm trying so hard. It's so absurd we'd be moved to pity. You can't move a sailboat like that. And yet that's exactly how many of us approach our life with God. We may have tried really hard for months or even years, but we got frustrated when we weren't moving as far as fast as we would have liked. Maybe we even have given up on the idea of deep transformation that it's even possible. We give in to a cynicism that says, I'll never really change. But the Bible in a myriad of ways repeats the promise that change is needed and change is possible. And yet it's not a matter of trying harder, but training wisely. The Apostle Paul says this. He says, train yourself in godliness. And the word there for train is the same where we get our word gymnasium. For more than 2,000 years, spiritual guides from vastly different traditions have emphasized the importance of spiritual exercises for spiritual health. These exercises have been called by various names, means of grace, spiritual disciplines, but in the last few decades, there's been a surge of interest in this subject, ancient wisdom for modern people in spiritual exercises. One of the writers spearheading this renewal, Richard Foster, gives this definition of spiritual disciplines. God has given us the disciplines of the spiritual life, he writes, as a means of receiving his grace. The disciples allow us to place ourselves before God so that he can transform us. The insight that becoming spiritually healthy requires training was revolutionary for me. But in hindsight, it makes sense. Running a marathon or learning a new instrument, that's hard. So why would I imagine that learning to think, feel, and act like Jesus wouldn't be at least as demanding? After all, we're not talking about picking up a new hobby. We're talking about the renovation of our hearts. So why should we be so surprised that it takes long training? Doesn't Jesus himself tell us on the front end that the way of following him is, quote, hard? He doesn't hide it. The way is hard, Jesus says. But I was in my 40s and had been a pastor for over 15 years before this realization hit me with force. 
I felt cheated. Why had no one ever told me that I would have to train to become a healthy person? I had preached grace so often to myself that I'd somehow lost the truth that grace is not opposed to effort. But the whole topic of spiritual disciplines felt threatening. I, I didn't want to appear legalistic. And the last thing I wanted was a new list of things to feel guilty about not doing. I look back now and realize my problem was no one ever really showed me how to train. So thank God some wise mentors helped me reframe what these spiritual exercises are. They don't change us. They're merely channels. But they place us in a position where God can more ordinarily change us. Spiritual disciplines are to life with God what calisthenics are to a game. Once the game starts, you don't get points for how many free throws you can hit in warm-ups. You practice beforehand. You trained so that you can be prepared when the game starts. In the same way, a discipline is any activity I can do by direct effort that will help me to do what I cannot do now by direct effort. Our best science has helped us understand our willpower is like a muscle. Our willpower gets depleted quickly. And that insight confirms what our experience may have already taught us, that you can't change yourself by willpower alone. That's why these disciplines are so important. They're valuable because they allow us to do what we cannot do by willpower alone. The 12 steps of AA tap into the wisdom. The first step is acknowledging that on my own, I can't stop drinking by willpower, by trying. But what I can do is arrange my life around certain disciplines, the 12 steps. I can enter a life of training for sobriety. In the same way, spiritual disciplines are any activity that help us train to live life as Jesus taught and modeled. The goal is not to become a person who is proficient at spiritual disciplines any more than the goal is for a basketball player to be able to make 9 out of 10 free throws by himself in a gym. The goal is, through private, personal training, to become the type of person who can do what's required when it counts, when the game is on. That is, when you're actually living in relationships with other people. We want to become people who do the right thing at the right time, in the right way, in the right spirit. That's wisdom. We want to become the type of person who knows how to love wisely and well in each moment, how to respond as Jesus would have us to respond. You know when to laugh and when to cry, when to embrace and when to challenge. You know when to get angry and how to get angry. Aristotle once wrote, anybody can get angry, that's easy. But to be angry with the right person, to the right degree, at the right time, for the right purpose, in the right way, that is not easy. So how can I become a person who expresses anger in a healthy and loving way? Well, that's an example of what the spiritual disciplines are all about. And please remember where this lesson began, the image of sailing. All these disciplines are doing is putting us in the right place for God to change us. So if you look back over your life and see that over the past five years, you've become a little more patient, a little more loving. You may have worked hard to become those things, but we get no credit, for it is God who works in us. At the same time, no one accidentally drifts into a life of health and maturity, and we don't all start in the same place. You must decide, very much akin to training for a marathon, I want to become a wise, healthy, loving person. 
I've seen lists of spiritual disciplines that range in length from 9 to over 40. There are different schools of thought on picking disciplines that best fit your temperament and season of life, and we'll take up some of those in a later lesson. Today, I just want to make the point that spiritual transformation does not happen by accident. It takes training, not trying. How do we do that? How do we draw the sail to catch the wind of God's presence so that we can move ahead in joy? Well, that's what the next few lessons will be about. We'll look at a couple of non-negotiables when it comes to spiritual training. But I want to repeat on the front end that these habits of grace do not change us. They are the ordinary means God has provided for us to experience His ordinary grace. They are means of drawing the sail. You may remember back in Lesson 3, we focused on Jesus' call to take my yoke upon you. We thought about the strange fact that to busy, tired people, Jesus doesn't offer advice or a vacation. He offers a piece of equipment, a piece of farm equipment, a yoke. A disciple is a real-life apprentice of Jesus who has taken on his yoke, his way of life, in order to learn from Jesus how to live. Christ has given us an entirely new way to be human. That's what we said a disciple is, someone who's organized his life around three basic goals, to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to do what Jesus would do if he were you. Well, that's Jesus' yoke is how we train to become like him. He's inviting us to travel through life with him, shouldering our burdens with him beside us. Dallas Willard called this the secret of the easy yoke. The secret, he says, involves living as Jesus lived in the entirety of his life, adopting his lifestyle. Willard points out that it's crazy for us to think we could do the things Jesus calls us to do, like love our enemies or forgive them, while continuing to live in our same old ways. If we want to experience the new way of life Jesus offers, we have to adopt the new lifestyle of Jesus. Makes sense, right? If you want to become a person who runs well, you adopt the lifestyle of a runner. A lot of churchgoers say, I want my life to be different, but we never adjust our priorities or schedules or the ways we're going about living our lives. And then we get frustrated. Is it any wonder? We love the promise of, and I will give you rest, but we forget what comes before it. Take my yoke upon you. And maybe no one ever showed us how to do this. Especially in certain circles of the church, we've lost sight of the fact that the way of Jesus is just that. It's a way of life. It's not just a set of ideas, what we call a, a theology, or a set of do's and don'ts, what we call ethics. It's a way of life based on Jesus himself. This explains the head-heart disconnect so many of us experience, where our head tells us one thing, but our heart tells us another. Because our way of life hasn't changed, we haven't taken on his yoke. And because the habits of our lives are perfectly designed to produce exactly what they're producing. And for most of us, that is fear, stress, anxiety, and exhaustion. So the most restful gift Jesus can give to his tired people is a new way to go through our lives. Jesus' yoke. It's his way of turning us into wise, healthy people. Yes, we must labor to put it on, but his way gives us so much more rest than the ways we've been laboring. It's easy, Jesus' way, compared to the way we've been trying to move through our life. Jesus offers us a whole new way to bear our burdens with him beside us, 
learning to walk at His never-in-a-hurry pace. In conclusion, what we're really talking about is what the old masters called a rule of life. And don't let that word rule scare you. A rule of life is a schedule, a routine, a set of practices, exercises, habits that help create space in our lives for us to be with Jesus and become like Jesus and learn to do what he did so that we might have the abundant, full, free life Jesus offers. A rule enables us to become the people we most want to be. The Latin word we translate rule is the same word that was used for a trellis. In the same way, a vine needs a trellis so that it can grow in the right direction and bear fruit, so we need a rule as a support structure to organize our lives around abiding in Jesus. What a trellis is to a vine, a rule of life is to our abiding in Christ. It's not a rigid to-do list. It's just a structure to promote freedom, to allow abiding. A vine without a trellis is a wild vine. And our life with Jesus doesn't have a structure to facilitate growth. We will become rotten vines. Our life with him, Jesus warns, will wither and die unless we abide in him. But instead of getting bogged down in the dirt, you can grow towards light and health. A rule of life is meant to be life-giving so that we might run in the path of God's commands and experience his freedom. To say it simply, abiding in Jesus has to make it onto your schedule. Most of us are just too busy to follow Jesus in his way. That's why we need a rule of life, a trellis, a schedule, a set of practices to help create space to be with Jesus so that we might become wise, healthy, loving people like our master, the kind of people that Jesus died to enable us to become if we are willing to rearrange how we spend our days. If you're interested in doing more research on how you might want to begin to craft a rule of life, See practicingtheway.org or take a look at the Rule of Life from New Life Fellowship in NYC. Uh, Details in the notes of this podcast. Okay, guys, I'll see you next week.